This is the Collective Nightmares podcast. We are sociologists who talk horror. My name is Marshall Smith. I'm one of your co-hosts. Our podcast is built on the notion from Robin Wood that horror films can be read and understood as the collective nightmares of a society, or in other words, they are the one of the key points of release for the fears and anxieties of a culture. And by looking at those horror films, it can be an interesting insight to what's going on in that society. So that's where we start and we take it and we, we run with it from there. And I'm Laura Patterson. Marcel and I both have our PhDs in sociology from the University of Colorado at Boulder. And I, you know, I was saying to you earlier this week, Marshall, that whenever I have any free time, which I haven't had in years, plural, but Recently, just in the last couple of weeks, I've had a little bit of free time, like time where I wasn't so exhausted, I had to go to sleep. And there wasn't something I absolutely had to do. <laughs> and I always want to watch a horror movie, because it just feels to me like in this genre, especially genres that play with things that are taboo, and that tries to drum up, or at least make visible a lot of the negative things that are happening in society. It's just where all the interesting conversations are happening. So I love this chance to dig into this, this genre with you. Absolutely. And so we take one film each episode and we do an in-depth, detailed discussion of that film. For the past four or five episodes or so, we have been doing a kind of a mini-series specifically on serial killer films. So this is the last episode in that string of episodes about serial killers. If you find this episode interesting, you might want to go back. If you've been listening with us so far, that's great. We appreciate it. This episode, we focused on the 2006 film Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. And the summary of the film from IMDb is, the next great psycho horror slasher has given a documentary crew exclusive access to his life as he plans his reign of terror over the sleepy town of Glen Echo. There will be spoilers. We spoil the film. We want to give you a chance to... Go watch the film beforehand. We think it'll, and like I said, we do a detailed discussion. So if you've watched the film pretty recently to listening, we think it'll help you because we dive right in. So we also spoil, I spoil Scream, Wes Craven's 96 film, 95 film, which is a classic for a reason. I would hate to, hate to ruin that for you if you still haven't checked that out. Minor spoilers for Tucker and Dale versus Evil. I think that's it. That's it. Our entire catalog of episodes is available for free on our website, collectivenightmares.com. It's also free on Spotify. Should be free and available anywhere you, you find your podcasts. We'd love it if you would rate us, review us wherever you can. If nothing else, tell someone you know, tell a friend. We are on Instagram if you want to get in touch with us at Collective Nightmares. Listen as we discuss the Ahab in the film. Sadly, there is no Ahab for the film. So, <laughs> the rise of 
Behind the mask. Leslie Vernon. Yes. All right, I'm going to start. I got something to say. Okay. Here's what I have to say. This doesn't really actually have to do very much with the movie, but still, I feel feel the need to say it. So I first developed my sociology of horror class in, oh, I don't know, 2009 to 10. And the only day, I mean, they you Boulder only let me teach it once because... I think I only got to teach it once because whatever it's a toxic program with a bunch of petty bitter people uh so after I taught it once they they pulled the class from me because yeah anyway long story short is what I had during that the semester I had to, I got to teach it which I think was spring of 2010 10 more than 10 years ago 10 years ago just about I had mostly returning students. Uh, I really wanted the class to be a success. So I, I did recruit students from prior classes who I thought might be interested. And one of those students uh, was a was an exemplary student. And she suggested I watch this film multiple times. She, she was, like I said, she was an exemplary student. She was a great, just all around great person. She's doing social work now somewhere on the East Coast you know, that kind of person. And I just never watched it. It just never looked interesting to me, even with her recommendation. So Sarah, you know who you are? If you're listening to this, I should have watched the film. I'm sorry. I think you already, I, you already knew I wasn't that great of a person anyway. And uh, that just is another, another piece on the pile or another straw on the camel that, Anyway, I, I just want to say, Sarah, I should have watched it 10 years ago. It's a film that's well worth watching and um, took me 10 years, but I got it done. <laughs> so, yes, we watched Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon. I'm going to give a little dedication of this episode to, to Sarah E. All right. Hope you're still watching horror movies. All right. That being said, do you want to start talking about the movie or do you want me to? If you have some substance comments to make then you start because I've got a few superficial things but I don't I don't have a lot to dive in with to begin so I can start with something light or you can you can lead in with something heavier if you've got it sure do the light the opening scene in this film was the opening to creep wasn't it? okay not the opening scene but when the when the journalist first meets Leslie Vernon that was like verbatim the opening scene to creep and which one came first? Because this was 07. When was Creep? Creep maybe came second? Is that right? Oh, Creep came afterwards for sure. So when she shows up and he's not there and then he's like, haha, just kidding. And he's got that like sort of bouncy attitude. And it was just so exactly Creep. And I couldn't help but think we were watching the exact same movie at the beginning because his personality was, he went inside and, you know, the guy in Creep goes and makes a smoothie or whatever he's doing. But Leslie Vernon was like looking through the books on the shelf or whatever it was. And same sort of play off the two of them like he's interesting and into different things and wants to tell her about them and she wants to like learn what he has to tell and it was just so the exact same movie for 10 minutes and then it diverged but that was weird so is that one more reason to not be impressed with creep maybe <laughs> i mean they were two different movies really but the first scene was they were this one was interesting and really creep was not <laughs> I can't remember. You kind of liked Creep, right? 
I enjoyed Creep. I didn't have like a ton with lots of substance to say about it, but I, I enjoyed it. Yeah, I did. Yeah, yeah. Okay, okay. This one was interesting. It was funny. A lot of cool cameos, which was fun. And the commentary they made on the horror genre was was fun. I don't have a lot to dig in super deep, so I'll, I'll let you. I mean, I think that is it, which is how it was suggested to me or presented to me by, by my former students, low those many years ago is it fits squarely in the, it's actually a, a really lovely bridge between Scream, this, Tucker and Dale vs. Evil, and they're all deconstruction of the classic slasher formula in particular. So sure, by far and away, the most interesting or the, the substantive takeaway from the film is this is how you deconstruct something. And I don't know exactly what we want to do with that, but we have spent a fair amount of time talking about one of our let motifs of the podcast is how do you address a topic without perpetuating it? And deconstruction is one of the primary theoretical conceptual tools from Baudrillard, Derrida, from Derrida. And this is how you do it is you, is you take the, the tropes and the narrative and the formula and the conventions of, in this case, a media text, and you pull off the facade or the mystification in order to reveal how those pieces have been constructed. And by pointing them out and going through in detail and, and emphasizing, here's how this was built. And then that is what allows you to either dismantle it, dismantle the system or the formula or the convention or reconstruct it or both, but it's, and then we can go to the next step, which would be that's supposed to be, or that is arguably a way to escape a binary, which we've talked about as well, which is another leitmotif of the, of our podcast, which is if you've got, this is how things are done, whatever that is slasher formula. If you just do the opposite of that, you are still not just if you've got horror and you do not horror, or if you've got psycho killer and you do not psycho killer, psycho killer is still the underlying operating fundamental concept. So you're not actually dismantling the binary. You're just on the other side of the binary. And so deconstruction is, is a, is supposed to be a method of escaping that. And I guess we could, we could also talk about, did they actually, was the deconstruction effective? Did they get outside of the binary or, I mean, that may be a question or did they start and did they, did they achieve deconstruction only to at the end reconstruct the only to in the end reconstruct it even more firmly? Cause that I think is a danger of deconstruction is you can pull off this facade and look at how it's all been assembled and built and, and instead of dismantling it, you could reinforce it. You could, here's the weak parts. Here's how it was fabricated. This time, let's just make it and make it better. So, when that, but that's that's the key. That's the fun of the film. Scream, we recorded an episode on. I don't think we ever released it. We did it with students, so it was kind of an odd situation. We had We were recording remote or... Not remote, but we were recording in a different space where we had to take all our gear and we, I don't know if I really knew what I was doing. Anyway, we've done Scream. I will still stand by Scream's effectiveness and, and 
with accomplishing a deconstruction. Uh, and maybe at some point we'll, we'll revisit that. We talked about with Tucker and Dale versus evil. It may have deconstructed or tried to deconstruct some of the tropes, but we ultimately came away with however much of the genre was deconstructed. It perpetuated or it reinforced a bunch of other toxic, particularly gender toxic tropes and stereotypes and just undesirable messages. How do you feel about that? I love how you're saying that. Yeah. And I I didn't have the words to quite put that together, but I think that really resonates with my experience in the film. And so I would like to throw out a couple of the things that I think it on the surface looked like it was challenging, but at the same time, my take I think my take at the end of the film was that it really didn't effectively challenge much, if anything, even though it highlighted things. <laughs> so like, I mean, okay, too, too low hanging fruit, I guess. <laughs> the argument about the final girl being a virgin, it put on the table repeatedly, it played with, it tried to, I think, challenge that trope, but in the end, I think ended up reinforcing it by just substituting in, oh, she wasn't the virgin, you're the virgin, (laughs) which confused me, (laughs) emotionally confused me a little bit. (laughs) So there's that. Also the, the phallic piece, you know, the, the final girl taking over the manhood of the serial killer and, and equating masculinity with power in a way that wasn't it wasn't non-binary, right? It was just clearly the gender binary and that's her role is to take on this, this masculine implement and then show her power. And I don't feel like that was challenged either. So maybe we can start with those two. Yes. And I kind of had Liz. So I just finished watching the film. When did you watch it? Yesterday. Okay. So you had a little bit of time to ruminate. I like the coming in hot. I like the, I'm looking forward to when we go back to that, Laura, when it's like fresh, done, and let's let's get just raw initial, let's work through it. And so I, I was noodling on these things as I was watching, and then already I'm starting to see the ways that this lined up, that these two examples that you just presented are indicative of a lot of the pieces. And I my intuition right now is, the further we go, the more that's what we're going to find is there was this real effort at deconstruction for the first, well, up until they arrived the night of at the farmhouse. And then after that, all that work just ended up being all of that work was conscious. Uh, I think actually it must've been conscious. And I'm going to say that, Um, I mean, they were definitely trying to do a scream thing where they were uh, calling attention to the genre they were referencing. I mean, we've got all kinds of references, right? We've got, like you said, Kane Hoder makes a cameo. Uh, uh, What's her name? Zelda from uh, Poltergeist makes a cameo. Robert England makes a cameo. So there's, they're very clearly versed in the horror genre and they're trying to address it. And the last piece of evidence I'm going to offer for that is in the special thanks to the film. They thank three or four professors at a university of uh, Pittsburgh, I guess. I don't know where it was. I don't remember, but four scholars. So it seems like this is someone who's probably has read film criticism and has done like intellectual academic work with regard to film. And so they, they did 
this uh, work to accomplish deconstruction up until that point in the film, two thirds, three quarters, what it was. And then sadly, they just felt back into the trap and ultimately just reinforced everything that it would have been really interesting to, for me, it would have been a much more powerful and interesting film if they had then actually done some disruption, some dismantlement or some dismantling or some reconstruction rather than just, oh, rather than uh, reinforce the structure that is there. And for me, the difference is at some point, there'll probably be scream spoilers in this episode. So if you're listening, scream is just going to happen. But if they scream, the way that things were deconstructed was after all of these conventions and tropes of the horror film were presented and then and then when it got to two thirds, three quarters in through the film, then it actually found new paths. And we had we had characters doing things that they wouldn't typically do, which long, very long route to get back to what you presented, Laura, which I like. I've got full coffee today. So just so you know, Virgin Sydney and Scream has sex with her boyfriend, survives just right there. Just that basic it's she she starts as the virgin she starts as the survival girl which would be final girl in academic work but in this film they reference specifically survivor girl and the sin is death formula of slasher when sydney has sex with her boyfriend in i can't think of his name in scream then she should have ended up being you know marked for death and doesn't and then there's a whole there's a whole series of other things but just that like you said, to start with these basic, real basic, low hanging fruit, that in and of itself. And they had the totally, they had the opportunity there because they had Kelly, they bust in and they're like, oh, she's fucking his brains out. <laughs> and oh, well, you're not a virgin, so you do have to die. That's, and so for those of you listening, that's the, that's the difference. The deconstruction is, oh, we have this all set up. Here's the formula. Survivor girl's got to be a virgin, innocent yada yada and then they know all this they've talked about it all they go in to save her they find out she's not a virgin she's totally into it she's sexually active they talk about it but instead of so at that point you have the you have the options of you've you've presented the binary you've presented the here's the formula the positive so you can then either do what this film did which is she still dies. So it is, and the virgin still survives. So you've gone back to the formula that you were calling attention to and just recreated it. Or at that moment, you could have, you could change it and you could have something different happen with Kelly's Kelly did survive would be the immediate, right? Or maybe what's the main girl's name? Gentry, something Gentry. I have no idea. Taylor fucking something. Absolutely no idea at all. None. <laughs> no recollection. All right. Oh, look at that. Good job. <laughs> Taylor, she could have been having sex with the camera crew, or she could have had sex with Leslie Vernon, or but something to where it didn't just go back into the virgin survives. Just as a very basic, for those of you listening who may not be familiar with all this, that would be a disruption or a reconstruction of the, of the argument is take what was there, pull in different pieces and create a new path forward. This is really great. And you're 
highlighting the emotional reaction I had to the film and what I came in with, which was that it was interesting and it was fun to watch and it was funny and it did a good job of highlighting tropes in the genre, but you're exactly, you're putting words to the experience I had, which was that it didn't do anything with that. And so while it was fun to watch it list out the tropes, it just listed out the tropes and then went back and like you said, reinforced the tropes again with itself. And so that's not very interesting or complicated commentary. I mean, it's a little, it's interesting because it lays out the formula, but it would have been much more interesting if it challenged it, especially from the perspective of this being done in 2007, when a lot of these tropes are very dated and do have problematic societal repercussions, or at least are, are based on tendencies in our society that are problematic in wider ways to make a film that doesn't just highlight them and then yeah, double down on them, but instead raises a, an interesting counter direction would have been a much better film. Yeah. Yes. I, I mean, I agree. And I think that's the crucial piece, Laura, which what, of what you said is it's one thing if you take something that isn't necessarily very problematic and you, you go through and you analyze it and dissect it and evaluate it and then you reconstruct it as it was. But when they're, when they're talking about, in this case, when they're presenting formula that for and conventions of the horror film genre that were and are still very sexist and really problematic gender stereotypes and, and presentation and representation of well, again, a gender and then sexuality commentary of good and evil. And when you take all that and you do this analysis and evaluation and you're like, oh, great, we'll just put it back where it is, where it was. Just maybe we'll update the materials, but we're just going to rebuild the, the house. Then you're not just perpetuating the problematic. You are reinforcing it. And like you said, what is this, 2006? Seven. Seven. Okay. And they're doing this sort of right at the start of the next wave of, or not the next wave, right at the start of the wave of the reboot of the slasher film. Because in the next five years, we get remake of Friday the 13th. We get remake of Nightmare on Elm Street. We get remake of Halloween. Because it was Rob Zombie's Halloween's what? 2000? Halloween might have already happened. Did, when when did he remake 2004 or something? Yeah, I was going to say seven. Were you? I don't okay. Know. So, okay. Let me do a quick. Seven. Okay. So, okay. So, so this is right in that moment when all of these genres are, or all of these classics are being rebooted. And it just was, it's just a, a wonderful, would have been a wonderful moment or a prime moment to, to emphasize okay, great, reboot all these classics, but adjust them so that there is something, that, so that it is actually doing something better or it's it's at least addressing some of the more problematic issues. Yeah. And I guess I would say it, it laid out patterns, but it didn't raise them as problematic. It raised them as tropes, patterns. And maybe a useful way to proceed here would just be to run through what were the tropes it pointed out? What did it highlight? I mean, the two that I mentioned are the first two that came to mind and also two that were disappointing. And I, I noticed 
even if I, I didn't quite put it together in my head, I noticed it emotionally in my experience of the film that those were two really key places where they laid out a, a trope that really is trouble and then just didn't do anything with it. So what other tropes did they lay out and did they challenge anything or did they basically just identify without problematizing any of it? The, the first thing that comes to mind, there might be a little bit, a little bit of meat on the bone there for us is it does seem like they were really trying to deconstruct the, the killer as this evil force. One of the last lines of the film is, is Robert England, how, uh, what, whoever, whatever his name is saying, he's just a man. He's not this force of evil. It's only getting worse as you say that, but you're right. That is one of the tropes they challenged most and possibly most effectively throughout the film, which is like the worst one to pick. I mean, if you're going to pick, why why is it the worst one to pick? Because, because when you look at ideologically speaking, what is the harm that slasher films do and what sort of messaging do they put out there that could contribute negatively to society? I would say, yeah, the sex negativity that they throw out there, the uh, tropes about what women are supposed to be like and what a valuable woman is. And also the, just like they said, with the sort of phallic imagery associated with competence and success and triumph, then the woman has to essentially take on these masculine traits in order to succeed. That's all problematic. The part where the villain in a slasher film isn't seen as doing a service to society. I mean, that's almost, it's kind of an interesting argument in a way, and it maybe justifies some of the horror genre. Like, Hey, we need things to fear. We need, we need imagery and and medium to highlight for us or reflect to us what we're afraid of. That's an okay point. But to raise that as like, that's what we need to really focus on changing is we need to look at these villains in these horror films as not problematic, but rather doing a service to society. That's like way down on the list. Yes. Okay. I agree with you. I was, I was thinking something slightly different of it. It may, it could be a good thing if what they were saying was these aren't these killers are not some sort of force of evil. They are people and people who are doing bad things to other people. Like that is actually, I think a fairly productive message. These, they aren't, it's just a realism argument. It's not the tall disheveled guy is not a demon or something. People, all kinds of people are killers could be a bubbly fit, normal quote unquote looking night white guy uh, who just trains a lot. And like, that's like the one I think maybe positive, but what you're saying I think is, is a deeper thing where they mentioned, right. Like it's good to have an outlet for a sidle outlet for fears so that all that emotional energy can go somewhere and be released in ways that are not, that are, how about less, at least less harmful than they maybe could be otherwise, which I think is, I don't know if we've discussed that option as a lot. And I think that's something we would, we should try and keep in mind of maybe, maybe that's the idea that horror movies are this outlet for, the collective nightmares of a society is implicit in our podcast explicitly. I don't know if what we've said is, is it is arguably 
to have all of that anxiety and fear and negative energy be channeled into something film is arguably a less harmful or least harmful expression of that, which is somewhat akin to the argument about porn of if you give someone who has problematic fetishes an outlet through here's pornography with made with and by people who are consenting and interested in doing that for whatever reason they are, maybe you're giving that person an outlet so they don't actually take it out on someone in their lives. So that's a, that's an interesting, and that may be the one semi positive thing, but that interrupt me here if you need to, but that in itself, if that is a, if that's a semi-productive or a productive component of the argument, all of that is undermined by them then having this man bites dog dynamic with his mentor where they're normalizing killing as this task and this kind of creative job. And Leslie is, it's something that you like discuss while you're barbecuing and over tea, just like you would if you're started an architecture firm, right? And let's brainstorm some ideas. So, but so all of that, if, if what you're going to do is say evil and people who are doing terrible criminal acts, like murdering other people in mass, they are not demons and devils and who knows what supernatural or some other something beyond human. There are people who are doing bad things to other people to then take that bad and be like, well, it's really not that bad. You can always, you can just kind of see it as this, you can satire it as this task, creative kind of workshop thing and normalize it on that other side really contradicts that argument. Right. And the, the useful part of that argument around, we need to have villains, we need to have artistic media, I would say to reflect our fears to us and to provide conversation points and to provide, you know, communal, yeah, conversation and just understanding with the things that challenge us. And, you know, all the reasons that I say that I like horror, that's artistic expression. That's not actually doing it. And so the way the film is, is presented, I think some of those moments to me just fell flat with the conversations about like, oh, you can just kill, you know, is there somebody at the library who lets her in? Oh, have that person die or have, you know, that just, I understand that this is still a film. And so that is still expression, but that made those exchanges not hold water for me, unless I'm missing something there and you want to dig into that or, or point out a different take. It just, to me, felt like they were playing with that and it was funny, but it didn't, it didn't do anything. It didn't do anything meaningful for me. No, and if anything, they also undermined it by having the mythology be manufactured. If there had been a great uncle who really was this like terrible person, it would have been like, yes, look, there are terrible people. There are people who are just, who do bad things to other people. But to have that all be, again, manufactured. Um, I agree. And the rape trope mm-hmm. felt like a trope. Mm-hmm. And that's just, you know, to just throw in some rape because that's what goes in a horror movie wasn't commented on meaningfully. And maybe it's, it's helpful here then too, to just lay out what are some of the problematic tropes in slasher films, because they didn't really, there's so much that they omitted problematizing in this film. I mean, racial tropes are hugely problematic. Weren't touched on in this film at all. I think unless you caught anything. No, there were, I don't think there were the one camera person might've been, and the stoner might've been a person of color, people of color. But particularly having the stoner guy be a person of color is 
that's not good. I mean, there you're just feeding stereotype, right? <laughs> I, I mean, I again, I'm just going by by what we saw on screen. I, I didn't look up who those actors are or anything, but and they were total bit parts, and it wasn't even. Yeah. So that is, okay. And I mean, you, you've tried to steer this conversation back on track twice now, Laura. So what are the tropes? So yes, the the racial exclusion is a key piece that they did not address. You already talked about the sex negativity, gender, the white suburban utopia as the center of normalcy and sort of the good haven that's being invaded by the other, and we need to protect against the other on this like happy little suburban street where the good happens. And, or in addition to that, the, just the fear of other people, like you should be afraid of other people, which is where they were going with focusing specifically on Nightmare on Elm Street, Mike Myers, Jason, when they go and see Kane and he's like running back into his house it's like, oh, you should maybe, even if you live in this super nice, wealthy neighborhood, you need to be afraid of the people around you. I mean, that sort of fear mongering is not helpful. And particularly in contrast, right? It's in contrast right. to what the safety and what the haven is, because the haven is very much white middle-class suburbia. And that ties into the race piece that we already laid out there, because the problematic trope in these slasher films is that everybody's white. And again, it's just this white utopia that's being invaded. And then... Another problematic that's probably a smaller trope is really, well, to me is most clearly represented with Halloween with Dr. Loomis, where Laurie Strode, after fighting off Michael Myers through the whole film, ultimately is damseled and has to be rescued by by Dr. Loomis coming in and shooting shooting Mike Myers. Similar thing here. I mean, I understand Robert England didn't actually, but still this idea that you need a man to come in and save the day. And he was, so he doesn't come in and save the day in this. So it didn't really, it didn't reinforce that that way. Actually, no, he did. Right. Cause he, so he gets knocked out with a shovel. And then when Leslie is, is bearing down on, yes, he, he does save her. Because he then, so Robert England comes back and does something to distract Leslie so that so that Taylor can get out the grain chute or whatever it was. So otherwise she would have been killed right there, right? So he really did save her. Ultimately then she goes on to overpower or overcome Leslie of her own devices. But it was still, again, where, you know, the man needs to come in and like save the day, whatever, and just the gender exclusion. I mean, the gender, the characters, obvious, well, Taylor obviously is important, but every other woman in the film is sidekick, just relegated to a secondary status as a partner. And every one of them is there for their appearance, including what's his name? The mentor, Eugene. Is that Eugene? Who, who, who's the mentor? Do you not know? No, I'm looking it up. Yeah, it is Eugene. Including Eugene, Jamie is his partner. And Leslie's like, oh, and she's super hot. So that's fun too, to get to see them. And Kelly's there because she's hot. They talk about how hot she is. The camera guy can't not focus on her boobs or whatever. Um, 
and whoever the other girl is, I don't even know her name. I don't even know if we ever got her name is there just to run around in her skirt and we see up her skirt when she, and they do have this moment of like, there's a great example of where of that just captures where this film breaks down is Leslie telling this story, how great are her breasts? And we have this super close up where she's unzipping her shirt. He's talking about his plan for the evening and whoever this girl is, is downstairs. I don't remember her name. And in the voiceover, Taylor says, well, don't you think that's gratuitous to just have this gratuitous shot of breasts? And instead of doing something different, so it isn't a gratuitous shot of of breasts, they talk about it, but then they just show a completely gratuitous shot of breasts, which doesn't challenge anything. Just because you, and we've talked about this in other films, or I don't know if you remember anything specific, but just saying this is gratuitous, but then still doing it doesn't excuse you or give you license or exonerate you from, it doesn't make every, all the other problematic pieces of that go away. You know, it's all of our human centipede rabbit holes. Yeah. Yes. Okay, and there you go. Human centipede rabbit hole. Yes. Thank you. I, 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 I thought you might remember better, which yes, exactly. You're exactly right. And it's both critiquing the women for their sexuality and then valuing the female characters basically only for their beauty and sexuality. That's really troubling in this film as well. And that definitely stood out to me that everybody's beautiful. And that's one of the, you know, on our list of problematic tropes about slasher films that women at least attain their status in the film for being beautiful and usually being blonde and blue eyes and, you know, light or often being blonde and blue eyes and light. And that was exactly the case in this film as well. So a lot of these, it didn't even necessarily highlight. It highlighted some of them. And, you know, like you said, laying out the patterns, laying out the tropes could be the first step in actually making a meaningful contribution to the genre. It's interesting, though, that it laid out some of these and some of them it recreated without even acknowledging. And then those that it did acknowledge, it didn't actually change or do anything about. So it really ended up reinforcing. It reinforced them and it also reinforced a lot of ones that it didn't even highlight. Do you have more that you can think of tropes or whatnot that not off the top of my head, problematic tropes in slasher films. I'm trying to think through. And that was the last one that I had floating around in my head that I wanted to get out there was the women, especially have to be beautiful. I mean, I guess we've got the drugs being wrong. Also, we talked about sex being wrong, but right. There was commentary about, Oh, they're drinking, but you know, our girls not drinking and that's perfect. Mm-hmm. 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 And Taylor also doesn't drink or do drugs. She specifically turns down the beer earlier on in the film that Eugene offers her when they go to the barbecue. So we have a specific moment that establishes that. So uh, um, so yes, so, so she's just been sucked out back or she's just, the film just represents the mold. And the twist is not there's a new way to do this. The twist is, oh, she's not the trope. She's the trope, Mm -hmm. which isn't helpful. I mean, I guess, uh, let me just ask this what we think, if there's any others. I mean, I think we've established clearly the pattern. Either it was ignored, either the film didn't call out the trope at all, or if it did call out the trope, it called it out so that it could just, like you said, slide a hand. Oh, it's, still the trope it's just the trope is about 
character B instead of character A, but we're not actually going to change anything. Our whole twist is just not the character you thought instead of, again, scream, here's what you thought was, and now we're going to do something totally different. But the, the one thing that they didn't explain or as they're going through and explaining everything is the apple press. He's like, do I have to explain the significance of pressing apples to you? She's like, no, I get it. And I was like, what the fuck is the apple thing? <laughs> is that just me? Does apple pressing mean something to you? Is that like a, uh, the only thing I could think of is like crushing testicles. Is that? It, I thought of that too. And then I wondered if it was actually meant to be simpler than that. And he just meant, oh, it's going to smash something. But symbolically, I had the same thought. I thought maybe they were testicles. I also wasn't sure. Because <laughs> I, I did, and that's, I think that's what it really hit me that I was, I was disappointed because the film wasn't actually deconstructing. It wasn't actually disrupting or dismantling these conventions was when she does fight him at the very end, she swings and hits him with the hook, the like pulley hook thing. And I, and my, my thought was, my thought was, well, what's the symbolic significance of that? They, they've gone, they've spent like five minutes in this film talking about the symbolic significance of particularly weaponry. I was like, what the fuck does a hook have to do with anything? And one, I don't think it did have anything to do with anything. And then two, the apple press, I guess at least it's not a phallic, but it is, it's, it is still a phallic because then it's just, I'm crushing your balls. If that is the significance, it's not, again, it's not, it's just not something else. Okay, great. So it's a something to do with testicles instead of something to do with a phallus. It's still masculine genitalia as the empowerment. And she had already just stabbed him with uh, his scythe. So it was absolutely still in that scene or in that lane. And I'll throw out a few more tropes that it highlighted. Oh, yeah, great. That I don't actually see as terribly problematic, which is why they missed the other list of what are the problematic tropes in slasher films. But the closet, the, you know, hiding in the closet, the um, killer having to walk and look like he's running and catch up with people. Oh, I had one other, I think. Oh, I forgot. I'll get there. But, you know, there are other tropes that it brought out unless you see something, I didn't see that it did anything interesting with them other than tell us. No. Cause what were the rules, right? You can't kill anybody in the closet. Mm. But then they never hid in a closet. Nobody ever went in a closet. Did they? I mean, and then the shed was, was womb like, but she, she, she kills him in the shed. I don't remember what that was very Friday the 13th. Oh, that's the last thing I was going to say. The killer being invincible because at the end we see the, standard scene where he's in the morgue and then he sits up even though he's been crushed and burned and so again it it highlighted the trope and didn't challenge it not that those needed to be challenged i don't know that those unless you have something deeper on any of those they're not at the top of the list (laughs) certainly if i were laying out what should we challenge about slasher films it wouldn't like make the immediate cut but maybe you have something more interesting on them no no there's probably something problematic with I'm trying to think exactly how that plays down, but it seems like there was something very Freudian about how Friday the 13th is resolved and the like hovel where Jason has the shrine set up for his mother. 
and I don't think any time that we're reinforcing or representing Freud's ideas, I don't think that's great. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> Freud is kind of a disaster. Of, not kind of. Freud is a disaster of sexist projection. <laughs> so anytime we're we're taking his ideas and like he's still giving them any sort of credence is problematic. So that may have come through somewhere or that may be there somewhere. I don't think that that was what was happening here. And if it was, no, I'll just go to, I'll, I'll say definitively, or I'll say with certainty that wasn't what was happening here because we never got any discussion of mother, father for either Taylor or Leslie, never, no family background, none of that. So there was no, so that was just sidestepped, but yes, that is a horror trope that, can also particularly a slasher trope that can still be problematic. The only other thing I can think of is, Oh, I guess I, I guess that is pretty prominent, right? Cause Halloween, I think, I think the original Halloween, there's a way to read. I think I've read uh, a, an analysis of the film. That's like a Freudian analysis. Cause Michael initially kills cause his sister's having sex. Something is Freudian. And then Friday the 13th definitely has like a Freudian anxiety nightmare on Elm street. I don't think so. But again, nightmare on Elm street, I just generally have a problem with nightmare on Elm street being included in that because it's Wes Craven and it's, it's different. It's just different. I, I understand it was part of that scene or that cycle, that first wave of, of classic slasher films, but I don't think that that was the third film that they should have integrated or referenced here. I think that just muddied things also. Anyway, were you going to? No, I, I I honestly think we might've done it. <laughs> we might've yeah. laid out what we needed to talk about with this film, which is bizarrely short for us lately. I but do. if you still have other, yeah. What I would like to do, and I agree with you, is we've really covered what needs to be said about the film. What I would think it would be fun to do for maybe at least a few minutes here is, so a segment we do on the podcast, sometimes formally, sometimes informally, but I think as much as we can, and this seems like a prime opportunity, is how would we have changed the film for the better? So if we were doing this or if we were writing this and we got to the the scene at the van where Leslie takes him and takes off his mic and is like, I'm not going to participate in this, or, or Taylor is like, I'm not going to participate in this, and Leslie's like, look, this night's about me and walks away from that point forward, then what could we have done or what could the film have done to actually dismantle and disrupt the conventions, the tropes, the problematic tropes in particular? Okay. So I have one thought. Oh, great. Go ahead. No, no, no. You go. I think that the film started off so clearly focused on Leslie Vernon and the villain in the slasher film, and also then the man in the story and the dynamic, but as the focus of the film, I mean, it's called the rise of Leslie Vernon, but it's about him running this whole thing, right? He's, he's the one who knows, this is reminding me of Saw, right? He's the one who knows what everybody else needs and what he, how he can do a service to society. And he's going to kill whoever he needs to kill in the meantime, but it doesn't matter because it's worth it. And he understands and he's choosing her and he's going to make sure this works and he's organizing everything. So I think shifting the focus of the film by the end of the film to whoever the survivor character is and really shifting the focus such that Leslie Vernon actually falls out of the film. I don't know that it should be a triumph over Leslie. You know, when you talk about sort of dichotomizing what's happening here, we don't just want 
the survivor wins and the villain falls because the setup, as far as Leslie was laying it out, was potentially that he was going to be killed at the end. And that would actually be a success in in some way. And he did his service. Again, he orchestrated it. So having his plan actually fall through and having the the story get rewritten in such a way that the survivor survives, but not in contrast to the villain. Like the villain, I think, needs to leave two-thirds of the way through the film so that it actually ends on a different note, not just triumph against the villain. I could take that and just fucking run with it. You ready? Yeah. All right. Here's what happens. Leslie goes back in to kill the other folks. Two camera people and Taylor. Taylor hands the camera or tells the camera person, look, we're going to do this. You're going to focus on me. Camera guys go in, follow Taylor. Taylor and the camera guys go and bust in on Kelly and the boyfriend. And they explain what's going on. Kelly and Taylor then become the stars. They join up, they collaborate, and they, they're they like, okay, look, here's what we're going to do. You're going to go downstairs. We're going to use you as bait. We're going to get Leslie out. You get Leslie, you trap him with the capture him, whatever. Then you take him. The other people can go, like, go get the cops or whatever, right? Go get the traditional power structure. And then, then you take Leslie and, and by take, I mean, Leslie and Kelly and the camera people, and maybe, I don't know, one of the, one of the boyfriends or something, whoever, whatever, they go in their van over to Eugene mentor's house. They put Leslie, they use then Leslie as bait to get Eugene and Jamie. She, you know, Taylor maybe goes in as like, oh, you know, this went wrong. Can you help Leslie? You know, I don't know what to do, but I don't, you know, whatever, use that. And then- and then so you we got a sensory deprivation chamber right there. Right, we got to okay. use that. <laughs> we oh, got to yeah. use that because it's the isolation of that character and the removal of those characters. That's- Absolutely. Great. So, so at that point, you, you have a couple of options. You can put Eugene back in a sensory deprivation chamber. Um, I would like to see Leslie just arrested and like, you're going to go to jail, like, you know, and but yeah, you could, or you could put somebody in the de- deprivation chamber. You could, but you, you flip the power structure and you make it about what was the film? So, you know, Scream, they have the two killers that end up being the collaborators, but Gail, Gail Weathers and Sydney, they collaborate, which is, was the, was, was the uh, radical shift and the deconstruction and Scream. So in this, again, you have the women joined together Maybe you have the, the guy, the camera guy who's kind of may, might be the person of color. You have them all get together and like, we're going to orchestrate this new plan and we're going to use our numbers against Leslie. You do all this, you get them over to, to Eugene and Jamie. And then I don't know exactly what you have with Eugene and Jamie there. Maybe you do kill Eugene and Jamie, put them in the, in the deprivation tank because they've had their chance and they deserve to die. And then you have Leslie just go off to jail and just sit there and like wait for the cops to show up. And I don't know, but that's, there you go. I mean, that's. But I, I want to take it a step further and say, sure. as long as you've got Kane Hodder there or yeah. Robert England, or you've got all these cameos, you could have the film continue. Like I said, I'd like it to continue past a verdict on Leslie. Like I want it to keep going. And so you could keep going. And I don't know exactly what, but you could lay down some sort of verdict on slasher films using one of those other symbolic figures in you place could- of Leslie. Like, Something, or maybe not, I don't know, maybe not. But I feel like I would like the film to continue for a little bit and somehow make some commentary more broadly. 
not that slasher films are wrong, but like highlighting what's wrong about them, right? Like there's a lot that's problematic about them. Somehow really putting that forward because killing the villain doesn't highlight all of those problems as well as they could be highlighted. What, what are these problems that we're highlighting? Well, the racism and sexism, and, oh, oh, oh. you know, all of that. I, I mean, I, I understand that some of that's getting addressed in what you're saying, but I just wonder if there's a way to carry the film on a little bit longer and actually hit those issues. I don't have that. I, my, my piece is mostly said again, that little, that end, I don't know if he would be a little bit sticky because I, I agree with you about the deprivation chamber, but I was basically just thinking like you kill off Eugene and Jamie and you have the powers of B that kill or take Leslie away. Oh, they could save Robert England. I, I, that's what I was thinking too, is somehow, right, right, yes. Or use Robert England as bait instead of using the, the pretty young girl. That could be kind of a twist. And it, it was, it's, and that's what's so frustrating, right? Is we get to that moment when all of this could be totally, they, they'd set it up where all of that could have been totally just everything could have been twisted and flipped around and, and really had fun with it. And all they did was just take the formula and, and, and switch it to a different person. And they really also did just, if there was any supposed to be any meta commentary about being the film crew and being complicit in the encouragement of the behavior, because they're part of the production of the circumstances, or or they're at least there to promote it or feed off promoting it. That all just disappeared like magic. Oh, leave your cameras here, guys. Okay. Now we have the floating omniscient camera of Hollywood. So I, I, that to me also really bothered me. I don't know if there was any commentary there in the first place, but at that point, but you definitely, like you said, there was so there could have been something. And my first thought was inspired by you. Great. Have Taylor be the star of the movie now. Maybe, maybe if you wanted to extend it, Laura, what you could do was extend it beyond is what you do is you bookend the film and you have the, you have the newscaster from the beginning that introduced it, then interviewing Taylor. Oh, that's good. And Taylor saying something about this is all made up. These, these guys aren't whatever. This isn't all scary. This is, you know, this is some guy who was doing this for, dumb reasons. And I don't know exactly what you would say, but that's how you take it back. And that's how you, you scope it back out to big picture of, and, and you could even have her go show up at Kane Hoder's house and be like, here's a fruit basket. (laughs) I'm going to be your new neighbor now. Or like, I, I, you know, I don't know, but something, right. That could be your end of credit scene instead of but you could you could ever talk to the newscaster like, look, this was all just made up. He made up this story about this, all this place. And he made up all this story about his blood and the harvest moon and the and that, none of that ever actually happened. This guy, there was no Leslie Vernon. He's a Mancuso. And if you you think about it, just like what happened here that we find out with Leslie Vernon, if you look at Mike Myers and Freddy Krueger, that was all made up to scare you too. And it's fun to be scared, but really you're all fine. It's Echo Glenn. Go say hello to your neighbors and enjoy your safety in your suburb. Let's go meet Kane. 
hey, I tasseled you earlier. I'm sorry. Everything's okay. Here's your fruit basket and uh, some, or some cookies or whatever. And next time you need help with your leaves, let me know. I'll help you rake your leaves or whatever. I love it. I love it. I love it. Yes. <laughs> All right. There you go. That was fun. Yeah. Yeah. Good. Rate the film. Great it. Great it. Last segment of the podcast, we take a we take everything we've discussed into account and just give an overall grade to the film in terms of what it what it contributes or or fails to contribute with regard to the what am I trying to say, Laura? How do we what what are we grading on? <laughs> he like contribution to the ideological landscape in society, okay. you know, oh, how yeah. it how it uh, feeds society, really. You said it. I absolutely. You you nailed it right there. How it contributes or does it to the ideological landscape? Do, do we fail it? Because I'm like wavering between a C minus and a high D. Oh, really? and you're not a fail. Well, I see. It's like we we hit this question a lot. Is it worse to acknowledge something and then do a bad job with it than to not acknowledge it at all? I feel like it made an interesting contribution to the genre just by laying out some of those tropes. I mean, they were somewhat obvious. But it, it laid them out. It was interesting for that, but it didn't accomplish anything good, certainly. And it did accomplish some bad by reinforcing all of those things. So uh, I don't know. I could, I could be convinced to fail it. I also, my first instinct was like C minus because it laid out some interesting things and it didn't do that much harm, but maybe, maybe I'm wrong about that. Maybe it did do that much harm because it, all of these problematic tropes about slashers, it really didn't, it just doubled down on them. Yeah, that's that's my issue. Is 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 it laid all that out, but then it reinforced it, and it reinforced it without calling attention to the fact that it reinforced it. So it did the tell. It did all the tell of here are all these all these tropes that happen in horror films, and then we're going to spend the last third of the film showing you all those tropes without still calling attention to the fact that we are. And that seems to me really a worst of both worlds. I don't know if we need to fail it. But I definitely don't want to give it a C minus or better. I would I would be okay in a D range. I would be okay in a D, in, in a D range, and I think I could be convinced to be pretty much to be anywhere D minus D D plus. At that point, I just give it a D and I'm good with that. Yeah, <laughs> I, it's hard because I I liked it and I felt like it was a little bit smarter than films that just straight up recreate it. Mm-hmm. But then. Is that better or worse? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. when you when you you pull out and acknowledge what the pieces are, and then you just set them right back down. Hey, let's just go D. I don't think we need to nitpick over it. Yeah, I'm happy with that. Yeah, and I'm okay not feeling it because it's like you said. I think there was. How about this? I'm okay with it being a D because I think it was actually well intentioned. I, I really do, which is kind of unfortunate. I, I think maybe kind of like teeth. I feel like Teeth was really well-intentioned too. And I don't remember if we had like an explicit reason why we thought it was. It, it just, it was well-intentioned. It just went wrong. And, or at least in hindsight it did. So, which is, I think I got to give it a D because that's something that I totally would, I totally do fear. It's like someday I'd actually get to make one of my movies and 10 years later, people are going to be looking at it and be like, well, he was really well-intentioned, but he totally fucked up just all this, all these stuff, all this stuff, 
which I could see myself doing because I would, oh, he over intellectualized it and he didn't realize this. And, uh, you know, I'm still a white man, so I didn't realize this privilege and this privilege, my privilege here made me blind to all this. And so, I'll, yeah, so that's my own little selfish piece. But yeah. Okay, cool. See, it is. All right. Not as long as we've been going, which I'm totally okay with. We, we really appreciate you joining. I think this is going to be the last of our serial killer miniseries. And we'll, we'll see where we go next week. But we appreciate if you've joined us for any or all of this. That's great. We hope you, hope you enjoyed it, got something out of it. Horror films are our collective nightmares. for the COVID vaccine. <laughs> I mean, it, you don't really have anything till two weeks. I know. Still, though. Peace of mind. Right. But yeah. Yeah. No, it's just, it's so it's just, it feels like it's actually happening. Like we're moving in that direction, you know? It is. It's a uh, psychologically, it's it's quite a thing. Yeah. I took my mom out today to get her second. And before we had to wait like this big long line and this time we went right in and I overheard somebody say they had scheduled a bunch of teachers and then everybody's on spring break. So they were ahead of schedule and I was like, can I get my second shot? (laughs) 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 I'm just here for my mom. But, and uh, I actually, I think they would have done it, but they had, I had, I got the Moderna and what they had on hand was the Pfizer. So. Okay. That makes sense. So close. So close, <laughs> do you, you probably do have your second appointment made? Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, it would just save me a week, but so. yeah. 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 Well, I think you're, you're mostly actually protected probably already. Yeah. Cause it sounds like it's like 80 something percent after a couple of weeks. Oh, I thought it was 60, but okay. I don't know. Okay. I got the Pfizer one. I wanted the Moderna one. Cause everybody I know got the Moderna one, but Erica said it was the other way around that everybody she knew got Pfizer and she wanted Pfizer and got Moderna. I just thought, you know, if somehow everything goes down and like the people who got one of the vaccines all survive and repopulate <laughs> the earth and everybody else doesn't, I just didn't want to be like without everybody I know, <laughs> you know? just me. I'm going to be part of the Pfizer crowd, making new friends. I would have taken the Pfizer because it's only three weeks in between shots instead of a month. I, that's what Erica Did said too. Week. And I didn't, I didn't know that until she said that. So that's uh, cool. Yeah. That's what I would have. Anyhow, the next great psycho horror slasher has given a documentary clue. Ex- bleh. The next great. Did you say the film we watched? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I just spaced it. Okay. Oh. <laughs> they did. So I didn't get to lay around and watch movies all day, which was totally what I was going to do. But I started before Noah got there. I started his house Hayes on Netflix. House? Yeah, it, I think you sent me a thing about it, unless I'm making that up. Um, but I really like the first 10 minutes. I think it might be worth doing. And so it's new and it's relevant and it it's addressing a really interesting issue around like immigration and xenophobia. And Really? Yeah. Immigration. How do, yeah. you, how do you spell it? You, His house. It? His house. I thought you said haze. Like, oh. I, I, I didn't know if it was a name or like foggy weather. His House by Remy Weeks. Do we know anything about Remy? 
I do not. And I can only speak to the first 10 minutes, but I will say the first 10 minutes should promise, I thought, and I, if we don't have something better, I would like to watch it anyway. So I think it might make some good conversation. Okay. Yeah. If you, I guess if one of us watches it beforehand and it's not good, <laughs> you know, if it just falls off after the first 10 minutes, we can text each other and say, Hey, maybe we got to find something else. Sure. Great. All right. Okay. I'm okay with that. Uh, okay. Sounds yeah. good. Yeah. And we'll both be like totally vaccinated here soon. So maybe we can like hang out. Like we could come over and see it. We could do a movie together. And right. That'd be so nice. I miss right. you. <laughs> yeah. That would be, will be great. Did you see Alamo draft house filed for bankruptcy? No. Really? Yeah. It, Are they cl- closing? I don't think they're closing. I'm hoping it's, I'm hoping it is something where they, it's like a tax shelter or maybe they qualify for COVID help somehow, or mm. maybe they have to shut some theaters. I don't, I haven't really looked into the details, but it did send a little, I just saw a headline, but sent a little shudder through my, through my heart. <laughs> I hope we motivate to actually start going and seeing films together, at least most often and, and new ones you know, to actually spending the time to be in person together and record mm-hmm. together. And it's hard because I've gotten so used to Zoom now and it's so convenient. Mm. Life is busy and it's easier to fit this in and it's easier. Like you said, I, last week, was it that I watched right before we recorded? I think it was last week. And it's, I like it better too, but I've been often watching it like the night before and it's just easier to fit in. Cause if I watch it this day, I have to fit it into daytime hours. If I watch it the night before I can do it in like the pre bedtime winding down at the end of the day kind of hours, but I like it better watching. I just, I like it better when we take a whole day to do this together. And I hope we can find a way, even if we don't do it every single time. I mean, sometimes I could see falling back on zoom, especially with both of us having so much going on and all that, but still, I hope we don't let that drop and just stay on zoom. Cause I miss, I miss the time we had. I even just like the going out to dinner beforehand or just better ability to catch up because I always like miss you when we leave our podcast because I feel like I'm usually tired. It's like the end of the night. Noah comes back the next morning. I still got a bunch of stuff to do. Like, you know, it's, I feel like I need to go, but then I don't feel like we got all our time together. Like we just do the podcast and yeah, I don't know. I miss no, being I agree. more in touch. I agree with all that. I agree with all of that. And I will motivate to go see movies, new movies, at least in the theater. Cause at least as long as Elmo Draft House is still open. <laughs> I'm going to lie, totally selfishly, I was like, oh my God, I'm never going to be able to go see a movie again. <laughs> I would have to go back to, at least, I, certainly not with you. I'm, I was like, oh my God, I'm going to have to go back to like my pre Alamo strategy of waiting till the last week that a movie's in theaters and going <laughs> to see the latest show on a Tuesday so that there's nobody else there, <laughs> which is fine. I could do that, but. I, I I would rather not. Um, but yeah, then, so anyway, but then, yeah, you and I can, right, hang out and and hopefully, like, well, yeah, watch something or, or whatever. And then, yeah. Be nice. Yeah. And with, for the, you know, again, so that was a bunch of mumbling and babbling here. Uh, is Noah back at school? Mm-mm. Not till next year, but for summer, we're trying to get him signed up for a few one week camps. 
he's on the wait list right now. And so I was supposed to hear this week and I didn't. So I'm going to, I called him this week and I said, call back next week. So I'll try next week. Hopefully there's a wait list. How many million parents are out there? Like, fuck, I wish I could get rid of my kid for a week. (laughs) Not that that's what you're doing. But. Yeah, 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 yeah. He needs it. He needs other kids. Like he's survived COVID surprisingly well, mental health wise. I feel like he's still like a happy little kid, and he's still when he sees kids, he wants to talk to them, and like he just he doesn't seem stunted in a weird way. And you know, it's that's great. But like yeah. he needs to get out there. I mean, also oh, yeah. he's just going crazy because he has so much energy, and like he needs to burn that out with other kids that he can run around and play with. And like I'm not the best playmate, right? I'm really not. And. Right. You know, all he wants to do from like the second he gets up to the second he falls asleep is play some kind of make-believe, usually involving dinosaurs or sword fighting or something. And it's hang in there for three minutes. Then my grown-up brain just can't do it. Like, I just cannot. I can't. I can't. He wants to repeat the same stories over and over. It's like a thing at his age, I guess. You you run through some scenario and then you have to redo it and then you have to redo it. And then it's like, I just want to beat my head against the wall. And it's been like literally like 12 minutes. It's like this huge show of force on my part. Huge. And I'm like, wow, it was four and now it's 412. Like it's not, he needs something different. He needs a child playmate is right. what he needs. So I, I always love hearing you say those things, Laura, because that's exactly how I feel about kids. I just, or not I just, but for whatever reason, my thought was always, well, if that's how I feel about interacting with kids, I shouldn't ever be around them for more than like the 12 minutes that I, (laughs) that I would last or that I can last with that mental energy. So it just makes me feel a little bit better knowing that it's not like some deeply flawed part of me that doesn't, can't get on that, on that train, you know, it's not like all these, everyone like you and all these other million people who are parents have something that I'm just missing. You know, it's, it's a, it just, it makes me feel somehow normalized when you say stuff like that. I don't think so. Unless I'm missing it too, but I will say how, like, I love being a parent and I, I mean, I, I think, I mean, I'm not, okay. That was there. I'm babbling again. Um, with regard to the, the uh, what if, uh, what am I trying to say, Laura? 